I have a couple of quick questions before we begin this morning. Did Jesus ever sin? No. No, he did not. Jesus never sinned. Second question. Did Jesus ever fail? Did Jesus ever fail? No, he did not. I want you to tuck those two questions away for a few minutes. We'll get back to them, I promise you. I uh, really appreciated Foster's doing announcements a couple of weeks ago. Well, I appreciate him doing them anyway, but a couple of weeks ago was particularly insightful. When he got up and talked about how he had spent Saturday with his two nieces, and they had questioned him as to why it was Saturday. And the more answers he gave, the more why questions came. Those dreaded why questions from kids. No matter what you try to explain, there's always a, a why coming. And you know, the thing is, whether we like to admit it or not, we as childlike human beings often question God and his desires and his commands. And we, we often question God not just with the why, those dreaded why questions, but we also question him with some form of the why slash when questions. For example, repeatedly in the Old Testament, places like Exodus chapter 14 and verse 11, Exodus chapter 17 and verse 3, as well as Numbers chapter 14 and verse 3 and 21.5, God's people, after they had been brought out of Egyptian bondage by the hand and the plan and the power and the will of Almighty God, continued to barrage his servant Moses with one form or another of the why slash when question why have you brought us out of Egypt when we were so much better off back there? Now, that's not an exact quote, but there are several different questions that they ask, and all of them can be boiled down to that. A why, when question. Why have you brought us out here in this desert when we were so much better off back in Egypt? Either had more meat in our pots, whatever. But it doesn't just stop in the Old Testament. Same is true in the New Testament. For example, in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, we know that Jesus was at the house of Simon the leper, and this, this woman came in with this alabaster flask of very expensive perfume, and we know the story. She, she broke it, she poured it over his head, and, and the disciples there basically asked him another why slash when question. Again, this is not an exact quote, but the question basically was, why did you allow that perfume to be wasted like that when it could have been sold and distributed to the poor. And these questions are throughout the New Testament or throughout the Gospels anyway. What about the many times that the Pharisees asked Jesus to the effect, 
Why are you healing on the Sabbath when you know it is not lawful to do so? Or, why is your master eating with those people when they're sinners? Or, why is he allowing that woman to touch him when he should know that she is not clean? And, and so you get the gist of it. You understand the why, when question. But despite the fact that we know that in every one of those cases in scriptures I just went on to mention, God went on, or the scriptures go on, to prove that those things all had the approval of and were in direct accordance with the desires of God, even though we know that in all of those circumstances, quite often we do the same thing. Quite often, we do the same thing by leveling at God these why slash when form of questions. And unfortunately, that is true even sometimes when it comes to God's commands. Denominationalists, for example, will in effect say, well, why do I have to be baptized when it says in John 3.16, dot, 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 they do it, or why can't we use instruments in worship when the scriptures don't expressly tell us not to? And you know, we as New Testament Christians, we're only human too. We're only human. Now remember it's the Lord's church, but we're human. And sometimes we ask these why, when form of questions when it comes to God's commandments as well, sometimes publicly, sometimes within just our own minds. Now the beautiful thing about it is, is our Heavenly Father, as we sing, understands. He understands that we are but dust, as the scriptures tell us in Psalm 103. And he is infinitely patient with us as his children when we ask and seek to obtain and understand the answers to our why, when questions. There we go. Questions such as we are going to seek to answer today in a sermon that is entitled, Why Evangelize or Door Knock When Fill in the Blank? As we all know, hopefully by now, 20 days from right now, on Saturday, October the 8th, is our third annual. Brotherhood-wide door-knocking day. It's a day when congregations of the Lord's Church from all over the U.S. get together and knock doors. In fact, I believe it goes beyond the borders of the United States. Now, as per usual, one of the first why, when questions that might be asked when you start talking about door-knocking is, is, why go door-knocking when we've tried it before and it doesn't work. This is a typical question. Why do it when it doesn't work? Well, this morning I want to give you some considerations, vital considerations about that very question. Consideration number one. As it said in the bulletin article this week, it always works. Brethren, every time we go and preach the gospel, it works. And then the author of that article, wasn't me by the way, the author of that article goes on to explain to us exactly his point, how it always works every time we go. 
And he makes some really, really good points. And if you haven't read that bulletin article that was sent out this week, you should have it on email. If you don't have it on email, if you're not on the bulletin email list, just scratch out your, your email, legibly. Give it to me when the sermon is done today or give it to Kathy and we'll see that you get put on that list so that you can have a copy not only of this week's bulletin article, but the ones to come. But if you really want to know how he explained how door knocking always works and you're not on that email list, there are paper copies available out here in the foyer. So I hope that you will, in whatever form you have it or get it, will go home and, and read that. Because I'm not going to take the time to explain what he does in that article when he makes this statement. Consideration number two, when we consider why go when we've tried it and it doesn't work. Consideration number two, I contacted Brother Matt Wallen of House to House, Heart to Heart, and I asked him if he could give me the statistics from the last two Brotherhood-wide door-knocking days. This is what he had to say. In 2019, we had 600 churches of Christ door-knock in their local communities. There were hundreds of studies and at least 10 conversions. Now, I would imagine the reason, the reason that he says at least is because a lot of people don't do the follow-up work, okay? Um, they don't, they don't uh, always go back and say, hey, we had conversions as a result of this, or six months down the road, if somebody started coming and, and then got to study, and it, it can get lost. But he said, we know of at least 10 confirmed conversions as a result of door knocking. What did Jesus say one soul was worth? The whole world. There were at least 10 people whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life because of door knocking in 2019. But he didn't stop there. He said, for the 2021 day, and I copied and pasted what he said, coming out of COVID, we had less churches, only 150. But so far, I love that phrase, but so far, because you never know, it may take a year or two for some of these to materialize. But so far, 17 conversions have been reported from last year. That's more than one con conversion for every 10 congregation that went door knocking. Amazing. Brother Wallen's words. He even sent me pictures. There was this mother and daughter in Valdosta, Georgia, who were contacted by a door knocking and they started asking questions and they had a study and they were baptized, both of them were baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins solely as a result of the door knocking. And then there was this lady named Ruth from, the, from Warner Robins, Georgia, who was also baptized into Christ recently for the forgiveness of her sins who came as a result of door knocking, let me ask you a question. How hard of a time do you suppose we would have trying to convince those three people that, well, the church shouldn't have bothered to go door knocking because it never works? I don't think we could convince them of that. I don't think we could convince Jesus of that. Therefore, Consideration number three, when it comes to the question of why go door knocking when we've tried that before and it doesn't work, consideration number three is, realize that the question itself is one of those do you still beat your wife style questions to begin with. Now, let me pause right here.
I use this phrase at polishing the pulpit and I'm going to use it here. This is one of those do you still beat your wife style questions. Now let me explain how this works. Most of you probably know but let me explain it anyway. If I go up to somebody and I ask them do you still beat your wife? If they say yes then they are going to have a real serious conversation with me because I won't tell you what they are. You've already got that figured out. If they say no, what does it imply? That they used to. You still beat your wife. If you say no, then it implies that you still used to. See, even if they didn't, because see, the question's based on a false assumption that you used to do that, but if the person never has done that in their life, they can't answer yes or no and have it an accurate answer because the question sets them up to fail. The question is a do you still beat your wife style question because it is based on a totally false assumption, the false assumption that you used to. You can't win with that question. It is a do you still beat your wife question because it is based on a totally false assumption as if it were fact when in fact it is absolutely not. And so you see the question why go door knocking when we've tried that before and it doesn't work is the same type of question because it always works. If we're going to ask that question at the top, then we're asking a question based on a false assumption because it does work. Again, read the bulletin article. Look at these three ladies that were baptized. There were many more that, that he could have sent me pictures of. See what I'm talking about? The question sets you up to fail because it's based on a false assumption. So that's a question we shouldn't ask. But, but okay. Let's, let's assume for a minute, let's assume that that question at the top, let's assume for just a second, for argument's sake, that it is a legitimate question, which it isn't, but even if it were, the answer would still be exactly the same. You know why we need to go, even when we've tried it before and it doesn't work? That's why. Because the Lord said to go. <coughs> Period. Are we supposed to do what the Lord tells us to do? Yes. Did the Lord say go and make disciples? Yes. So we should go. Anyway, and the other answer to the question, or, or the other um, answer if this were a legitimate question, would not only be that, but it would also be this. It is not a matter of whether or not we failed or succeeded in our own eyes, but whether or not we love and trust God enough to go when he says to and be faithful and obedient in his. Listen. We can look back and say, well, it, it hasn't yielded a bunch of souls. And we can say, therefore, it's not successful as far as we're concerned. You know what? It doesn't matter how we're concerned. What matters is how the Lord sees it. And the Lord sees us as faithful when we go and do what he told us to go and do, no matter what we see for results. It's how we're seen in his eyes, not how we're seen in ours. Do we trust God enough to go when he says to? In Luke 5, 1 through 6, and John 21, 1 through 6, we've talked about this at length in the adult class, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but in both of those times, Peter's been out fishing all night with some of the, the rest of the disciples. They fished all night. That was the time to fish on the, on the Sea of Galilee. They were professional fishermen. They knew this both times they come in, once early in Jesus' ministry, once very, very late in Jesus' ministry. They fished all night. They caught nothing. They knew the time to go. Just like... I know how to fish for trout, but I didn't know how to fish for catfish. I come down here and I learned a whole different thing because the locals here taught me how to do it, but I didn't know that. I could take them up there and teach them how to trout fish and fly fish, which they don't do down here. My point is, is that local fishermen know how to do it. They, they are professionals, or at least Peter, James, and John were. I was never professional. Anyway, 
They know what to do. And, and these guys have been out all night and they caught nothing. So here's Jesus. And in both these cases, Jesus says to them, hey, go back. it's daytime. He says, go back out and throw the net down again on the other side of the boat. Now, in the first instance, in Luke 5, Peter says, Lord, we fished all night, but caught nothing. But because you said do it, we'll do it. Fished all night, caught nothing. But because you said go, you know what? We'll go. goes against everything I'm thinking, everything I'm seeing. It's going against the results we've had. It's going against the fact that, that our nets are empty. But you know what? Because you say it, we'll go. What happened in both cases? Well, we know, right? Because they were... It wasn't because of what they saw, but it was because of their faithfulness in going again when Jesus told them to go, they were rewarded heavily. You can look those verses up. And I suggest to you the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Doesn't matter what's worked or hasn't worked before, Jesus said, go and make disciples. That is not an ending statement. He didn't say, hey, if you've had good results before, go and make more disciples. That's not what he said. He said, go. There's nothing in there about your results. He said, go and make them. Perhaps an even more common why, when form of question right now. Here's the, here's the one that I've needed to get to. Perhaps the more common why, when question right now, especially in light of the recent pandemic, especially in light of the pandemic of COVID, with all of its heartbreaking, and they have been, church devastating, and they have been, attendance reducing, and they have been, dynamics of the past couple of years. The why, when question that we might more commonly hear or ask is more along the lines of, why even try to evangelize or go door knocking when we can't even keep the ones we've got? In similar fashion to the first question, I want to give you some vital considerations. I want to give you some things that we have to think about, that, that we need to discuss regarding this question as well, and especially as it pertains to our upcoming door knocking day. But before I give you those considerations, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind us that the devastation, that the devastating effects and dynamics of COVID have been tragically felt throughout our entire brotherhood, our entire brotherhood. And I'm not just talking about those souls who have lost their physical lives to it, but all of the other terrible dynamics associated with COVID as well. Whether or not you've attended some of the recent brotherhood meetings, seminars, events, or whether you've read recent brotherhood articles, or whether you've perhaps probed some of our brotherhood websites over the past few months, you have probably come across in some form or fashion the information that the Lord's Church has suffered a very substantial drop in attendance. 20. 25, 30% in some cases drop in attendance in congregations of the Lord's Church all over the country post as opposed to pre-COVID. I didn't want to go with those numbers. I wanted to find out for myself about a few congregations in Oklahoma and the surrounding states. So 
I got a hold of a few brethren, preaching brethren in other congregations, both within and in the immediate vicinity of Oklahoma, and I asked them about their situation. One congregation recorded a 10% drop. They took the two months of January, February 2020, just before the big COVID shutdown, as opposed to the last six, seven, eight weeks, something like that. And I found drops from 10% to 21% to 24% to 33% drop in Sunday morning attendance. With at least one, listen to this, with at least one congregation during that same time reporting a 53% Sunday night worship attendance drop, 53%. And another congregation that still to this day isn't even back up with evening services on Sunday night, COVID has devastated our brotherhood all over. And so, if we're seeking to try to answer the question, why even try to evangelize or go door knocking when we can't keep the ones we've got, I believe we need to turn to God's and his word for the answer. I'm gonna ask you to turn to a passage that at least in my head, in my mind, I believe absolutely single-handedly addresses every individual facet and nuance of that question that we need to have answered and that text is in John chapter 6 beginning at verse 48 please turn there and follow along with me if you would John chapter 6 the only text it is so important so vital to our question this morning that it is the only text that I am going to ask you to turn to or it's the only text that I plan to ask you to turn to let me put it in those terms John chapter 6 verse 48 Jesus Christ said I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh and which I shall give for the life of the world. Let me stop. Is what Jesus said true? Yes or no? Is it true? Did Jesus fail to preach the truth? No. All he's done is put it out there. Look what happens next. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Here comes the quarreling, the questioning, the complaining, and the criticizing. But Jesus wants them to know that just what he said is true. He, he wants them to understand that he did indeed teach the truth. Then Jesus said to them, verse 53, most assuredly. And in other words, let me tell you again, let me hit it harder, absolutely take this to the bank. And he's gonna hit it again. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's basically just told them that. But, but when they start quoting, I said, no, he said, let me, let me tell you, this is the truth. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus is not blinking. Jesus is not, he's just simply telling them the truth. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus said, this is what God, this is the plan. This is the word. This is it. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? See, Jesus challenged them. Jesus challenged them with something they hadn't heard before. Jesus challenged them with something they were really going to have to think about. Now, was it true? Absolutely true. But they were really going to have to try to get their minds around this. Because it was true, period. Jesus looked at them. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained, he said to them, Does this offend you? Jesus doesn't say, does this offend you? Well, maybe I need to reconsider. He said, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? And he says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Jesus said, no matter where you are physically with this, you've you got to understand that this is, this is life. This is what God said. Let us move down to verse 66. Because this is the crux of the matter I want to get to. It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Remember the questions I asked you at the beginning? One of the questions I asked you was, did Jesus ever fail and we agreed he never did did Jesus fail here I want you to think about that did Jesus fail here no if he never failed then he didn't fail here either he didn't fail God and he didn't fail man he did not fail to speak the truth in love that God wanted him to speak. He did not fail to speak the truth in love that men needed to hear from God and have him speak. He didn't fail God. He didn't fail man. Even though it was hard for some of them to take in the truth he taught and understand it. By the way, I don't think Peter fully understood. Listen, I, if this was something that Peter fully understood like that, then it's one of the only times I know that Peter did that. Peter wasn't one prone to just take it and say, hey, yeah, I get that. When I don't teach, it wasn't Peter's. No. I don't think Peter got it either. But, but did you see Peter's response? Peter, in effect, said, Lord, I'm not going anywhere because I want to understand this. You have the words of eternal life. And he said, even though Peter, I don't believe, understood it at the time, he was willing to stick around and learn. However, some people might say, well, Doug, you're wrong. Jesus did fail. He failed to keep the disciples that he had won. Because many of them walked away. Jesus failed. But he couldn't have failed if he never failed. So what, what on earth is going on here? He couldn't have failed to keep them if he never failed. And if we say he failed to keep them, 
When they walked away, then he did fail. So, so, so how does this work? Well, consideration number one that we must understand In that passage, it wasn't that Jesus failed to keep them. It is that they failed to want to stay kept or failed to want to keep staying with him. That, that, there's a big difference there. Jesus didn't fail to keep them. They failed to want to stay kept or failed to want to keep staying. They, that's, that's what happened. They, they failed, they failed to want to take the time and put in the effort like Peter to learn and understand the challenging truths that he was teaching. Listen, listen, the only way that Jesus could have failed here, the only way that Jesus would have failed here would have been to have failed to teach them the full truth of God. Is that right? If Jesus had backed up, compromised, changed up, switched up, not taught them the whole truth of God, then he would have failed. But he didn't do that. Jesus did not fail in any way, shape, or form, including the fact that he did not fail to keep them even though they left. That was not his fail being failing to keep them. You know why? Church, with all the love in my heart, hear me loud and clear. Do you know why? Think about this statement. Really let it sink in. Jesus did not fail to keep them Jesus did not fail to keep them because it was not up to Jesus to keep them. Think about that. It was not Jesus' job to keep them. Jesus' job was to go out and to seek and save the lost, right? It's Jesus' job was to go out and make disciples, right? Jesus' job was to go out and teach people, right? teach them as long as they'd let him, but it was not up to Jesus to keep anybody. They weren't his pets. Whether or not each one of these disciples stayed kept, for lack of better terminology, was up to them. Do you know why? Because God has given every single one of us a free will. As much as, I think that was the hardest thing, the hardest thing that God ever did was give mankind free will. It cost him his son. You say, well, it's hard for him to give his son. Yeah, but the reason he had to give his son is because he first gave man free will. Listen, if what I just said isn't true, then Jesus failed. If what I just said isn't true, then Jesus sinned, and so did God. And, and the reason I say that Think about the prodigal son, brethren, just, just stay with me on this. Think about the prodigal son. Listen, in this story, in the account of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 11 and following, the father represents God, right? We, we understand that. And the two boys with the Jewish and Gentile nation, we understand the parallel. God is, is the father in that story. Listen, did God fail to keep his son home? You better be careful when you start talking about God failing. Did God fail to keep his younger son faithful. No. His younger son failed to want to keep staying. The father did not fail to keep his son. His son failed to want to stay kept or to, to keep 
staying. There is a world of difference there. We've got to understand that. It's the same thing as Jesus did not fail here in John 6 to keep those who were already his disciples. It's not that Jesus failed to keep those who left. It is that they failed to want to stay. And so they decided to go. And brethren, as hard as it is to understand sometimes, we've got to understand. It is the same way with our, us. It is our job to go and teach the gospel. It is our job to convert the lost to Christ. It is our job to continue to love people and teach people and work with people and fellowship with people and serve people. That's our job, but it was never our job to keep people because everybody's got their own free will. Where in the scriptures did God say, you keep them? He didn't, he said, go. He said teach, he said make disciples, he said love, he said forgive, he said to do all these other things. We got all these responsibilities that we're supposed to be up to, but he never said, I, you better keep them. And the reason that God never said it was our job to keep people is because we can't. We can't. We can't. We cannot. He didn't design it that way. It is absolutely impossible for us to be responsible for keeping people. God even refuses to hold himself accountable to that. Listen, have people become Christians before in the past and availed themselves of the blood of Christ and then walked away? Have they? Is that God's fault? Is God going to hold himself responsible because he didn't do enough or give enough or be good enough? No. He didn't design it that way. Everybody has their own free will. God gave everybody as much free will when it comes to staying as he did when it comes to coming. That, that, that's a big deal. Listen, are the people in your family that you'd like to see converted to Christ? I got some in mind. And there ain't much I wouldn't do to see them converted. But you know what? As much as I want to see them converted, they've got a free will as to whether or not, no matter how hard I preach, no matter how hard I teach, no matter what example I set, if, if, if I could be, Jesus was perfect. And in his perfection even, he didn't force people to come. Is that right? That's right. Why? Because everybody's got a free will. And he gave them as much free will when it comes to staying as he did when it comes to coming. That's what we have got to somehow get. And I'll tell you why it is so critical. Here's why. There is nothing on this planet that Satan would rather do than to get you so overwhelmed, so burdened, so defeated by holding yourself responsible for something that Jesus himself doesn't he would like to have you so defeated and so overwhelmed and so discouraged and so neutralized with all of this, this, this guilt that God doesn't hold you accountable for that it neutralizes you from going and doing what God does hold you responsible for. That's why he tempts us and gets us to think in questions like these. Because as we've seen, that question on the top is another do you beat, still beat your wife style question. Because it is based on a totally false assumption, and that is 
that it is somehow somebody else's responsibility for the free will decisions that others make. That question at the top is based on a totally false premise. It is not up to us to keep, any, to try, to love, yes, to serve, yes, to give, to forgive, yes, 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 and yes, but ultimately everybody has got their own free will. Let me, let me try it this way. How many of you have heard of Steve Higginbotham? How can you miss a last name like that? Like this long. Brother Steve Higginbotham has been a gospel preacher for a number of years, and he did one of the most touching, one of the most heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching sermons at Polishing the Pulpit. He said about 40 years ago, he and his wife were planning on how many children they wanted and all of that, and they said, before they had children, they said, of course, the more children that we have, the greater the possibility that one of them's going to go astray. So they had four children. They raised them all the same. Raised them in a gospel preacher's house. And he came right out and said, the whole point of his lesson was his oldest son is now completely apostate. And as some of you know, Brother Higginbotham has dealt with cancer for the last two years. And he said, the pain that I've gone through with cancer is absolutely nothing in comparison to the pain in our hearts over our boy walking away from the Lord. For those of you who have kids who have done that, you know exactly what he's talking about. You would, you would cut your arm off or you'd see that happen and be glad to go grab the saw. And I hope if you've never experienced that, it's a pain you never have to go through. He said he could remember stories of his son as they were going to church in the back seat singing songs, singing songs about going to heaven and how great Jesus was. boy do I wish I still felt that way now he still felt that way now and brother Higginbotham when he got up to, to do his lesson I want to show you the slide that was his PowerPoint background and it was it was up there before he started to speak and it was this loving your prodigal child one of the very first things he said was don't bear unnecessary guilt, our children have free will. Now, he explained that all of us as parents could have done better, yep. We all look back and say, oh, I could have done this better, that better, yep, that's true. We, we all fail at things, at times I could have been a better preacher, a better brother, a better, better father, a better husband, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, this, isn't, this isn't about just thinking that everything's great, because it's not. But he said, what you've got to understand is when you've done the best you can do and your child makes the decision as an adult to walk away from Jesus Christ, that's not on you. It's not on you. Everybody's got free will. And then he made this chilling statement during his presentation. Our son walked away from the Lord in spite of the way we raised him and not because of the way we raised him. What does that mean? It means he said, we, we've done all we can. We did all we could. Did all we knew to do. We, we, we did the best we could. Don't bear unnecessary guilt because our children have free will. Brethren, I want for us to understand, we do the best we can to love, to serve, 
to give, to teach, to preach, to reach, to, to, to do all these things. But listen, in spite of that sometimes, not because of it, but in spite of it, some people who have a free will choose choose to just not stay with us. I'm not talking about walking away totally from the Lord, although some have done that, but just choose not to stay with us. They just, they just do, but, but they have that right. They have free, everybody's got free will. You and I got free will. You could have chosen not to be here this morning. And so the legitimate question is not why evangelize or go door knocking when we couldn't keep the ones we had. That, that's not a legitimate question. It's, it's based on a faulty premise that somehow it's our responsibility to keep others. But the question, the legitimate question is simply then, why evangelize or go door knocking? That's the legitimate question. And the legitimate answer is the same as it was with the last question. The legitimate answer is exactly the same thing, and it is so incredibly simple, it is the same answer that is everything else for us as Christians. You ready for the answer? Here's the answer. Because Jesus said go. The answer is because that we still go is because that's what Jesus did. What would Jesus do? He used to have those little, those little arm bracelets. What would Jesus do? Well, we know that Jesus not only taught us in word to go, but notice Jesus' example. Do you know? I mean, the reason that we go door knocking or the reason that we go and still try to teach is not only because Jesus said go, but because of Jesus' example. What did Jesus do after his disciples left after those, some of those disciples chose, they didn't want to stay anymore. Now notice Jesus didn't say, oh no, I'm responsible for that, I failed to keep them. Jesus never failed. He knew that that was up to them. But after they departed his little group, after they made his little group even littler, smaller, littler, smaller, smaller. After they made his little group smaller, they walked away. What did Jesus do? What did he do? I'll tell you what he did. He went out and he kept teaching, didn't he? Didn't he? He went out and he kept trying to make disciples, didn't he? Uh-huh. He went out and kept preaching the word of God, didn't he? He continued to preach and teach and do his father's will of making disciples and telling the disciples that he had made to go and do likewise. Brethren, our call, our commitment, our legitimate responsibility, our legitimate requirement according to Christ, is to go and make disciples and try to do everything we can, as I said, to love and work with our brethren. But it is absolutely not a God-given requirement upon us to try to keep somebody who has a free will. Everybody has their free will. You cannot let Satan blame you for somebody else's decision, whether it's parents with a wayward child, whether it's brothers and sisters in the church. Listen, do you know people that you, do you know people that this church has lost over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? That you all know somebody that, that's, that's gone over the last 20 years? Now just forget the last 2, 3, 4, 5, 20. Do you know people? Would you like to see them back? Wouldn't you love to see them back? But you can't control that. You are not responsible for that. Everybody is responsible for their own decisions and you cannot hold yourself accountable for somebody else's choice that I just don't want to sit in these pews anymore. You can't do it because if you do, Satan wins because he's got you neutralized so that you don't go door knocking, so that you don't evangelize anymore and you just throw up your hands and say, what good is it going to do? Everybody has their own free will just like 
on October the 8th, everybody here, every member of this congregation is going to decide what they can do. Now some, by physical health, can't go. Understand that. That's not what I'm talking about. But instead of allowing Satan to get us to blame ourselves for things that God never required of us, wouldn't it be better to go and get the things done that God said he does require of us? Wouldn't that be better? Hold ourselves accountable to that, to God's standard of what he said to go do rather than Satan's standard of, oh, I'm going to have you take responsibility for something that God never did. Same with the invitation. Preachers, preachers stand before people and they preach. And there's days they just think, man, there's people in this audience who've never obeyed the gospel. They've never, they've never obeyed the gospel by coming to Christ and having their sins washed away in the waters of Christian baptism the way that it says to in the church. I'll tell you right now, just like you with your family, just like church leaders here, just like me when I get up and, and preach in front of an audience, I, I'd love if there was any way that I could take responsibility. And when I see new folks in, in the, the assembly some morning, some mornings, I'll get up there and I'll, I'll, I'll go harder, I'll go fuller, I'll go louder, I'll go stronger, I'll go more intense. I'll, I'll just try basically pleading with everything I've got. You need to obey the gospel, but you know what comes the invitation song. I can't hold myself responsible if I have preached my absolute heart out to somebody who needs to obey that gospel and they don't do it. I, I've done what I know to do. It's not, my, it's not my responsibility. Or get up front and, and preach and know somebody's hurting and know somebody needs to just, 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 just respond in some way and you, and you know they're hurting and you know they're being crushed by this weight and, and you know that you've got the words that will help them just like Jesus did in John 6 and, and you know you've got to deliver it and you get out there and you just absolutely unload it. Praying inside, they'll come forward and get the help they need. And they stand up and they sing the song and you have the prayer and they go out the door. I can't, I can't. That's not my responsibility anymore, brethren. And it's not our responsibility to take responsibility for somebody else's free will to do or not do whatever. The question is not, should we go door knocking and hold ourselves responsible for other people's decisions in the past? We can't do it. The invitation this morning is this. The Bible says that we must hear the gospel, we must believe in Jesus, we must be willing to confess him as Lord, we must be willing to repent of our sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, and then live faithfully thereafter. Those are musts. Those are things God will hold each and everybody responsible for. By the way, the Bible says in Romans 14 and verse 12 that each one of us will give account of himself to God. That's where the responsibility is. But those are things that the Bible says. Now, the Lord's will is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. But still up to each one of us as individuals whether or not we'll do it. Even God himself, despite his will to see everybody in heaven, he will not take away your free will. He will not hold himself responsible for your decision. Because your decision is your decision. All of us this day must choose whom we will serve, if we will serve, how we will serve, where we will serve, and with whom we will serve. And that is nobody else's decision or responsibility other than each one of us as ours individually.
Because again, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Nobody else. Husbands, you're not accountable for your wife. Wives, you're not accountable for your husband. Children, you're not accountable for your parents. You're not accountable for your children. Brothers and sisters, you are not accountable for your other brothers and sisters. This morning, if you've never responded to the gospel, if you've not taken responsibility for your sins and done what God said to do, we'd love to set up a Bible study with you or you can come forward right now. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you're willing to repent, to turn from your sins and confess him as Lord, you can become a Christian. I took responsibility for that in 1985 for my soul. What you do with yours is your responsibility. If you walk out this door hurting this morning, you know you need the prayers of the church, but you just keep your hands and feet glued where they are. I I can't help you. It's up to you. Do you have a need? What is your choice as we stand and sing?